and that voice like completely opened my eyes. And I don't have any words to explain like how that feeling flooded me when I realized that I had no reason to be afraid of cops, that I was actually kind of a pretty good citizen, and I, they were like on my team now. Um, it was it was literally like a bolt of lightning in my head. Um, and, and it was it was like this tension that I've lived with since I was 15 loosened. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have any reason to just walk around afraid. And, and everything in me like relaxed, like, holy cow. It was this incredible feeling. Um, and I was almost tempted to drag my like 275 pound self over to the cop and go, hey dude, you know, I'm not afraid of you anymore. Like, but that wouldn't have helped at all. I don't think you'd have got it. But um, Instead, I spent the day, like, soaking in this feeling. Like, and I, everybody I tried to tell was, like, cool. And I was like, no, you don't get it. Like, it's amazing. You know, just no word for it. And now I realize what that feeling was was peace. For the first time in so long, a piece of me that, a piece of me had no peace, um, suddenly was able to relax and have peace. And, uh. Uh, which is our Advent virtue um, for this week. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. This week is week one, um, which at Open Table means a couple things um, that some of, uh, some of us aren't used to, so I always feel kind of obligated to explain the Advent season a little bit um, at the beginning. Uh, most of us in America grew up celebrating Christmas uh, more than Advent. Um, show of hands, how many of you celebrated Christmas you know, but Advent's kind of a, a little bit of a new thing. Anybody? Yeah. Um, uh, many other of us, they're just synonymous. When you hear Advent, you assume it means um, Christmas. Uh, and the difference can be summed up in this simple phrase. Uh, Christmas celebrates something that happened, and Advent celebrates something that happens. That happens and is going to happen. Um, and it's a little bit different. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus which just means a coming or an arrival. Uh, and, and the entire month uh, of Advent, the entire month of December, was originally used to, um, to recognize um, uh, Christmas morning um, as an event in the past, uh, celebrated kind of like a birthday party, but that informs the present and the future. Uh, rather than, uh, than looking at Christmas morning as this proof um, that God showed up, it's, it's looking back to say, we serve the God who shows up, the God who arrives and presents himself. Um, and, uh, and so originally the month of December was when, um, when we talk about Christmas is when the early church um, would uh, talk about his return, when Jesus is going to return, that we know Jesus is coming back to redeem the world and fix things. Um, and when new converts would, would spend a month kind of preparing their hearts for baptism, they would do baptisms in the beginning of January. And so you would spend, some people call it the Advent fast, there was certain fasting they would do during the month of December. And it was just to, to meditate on certain things that would prepare their hearts for the way that they believed Jesus was going to show up in their story and arrive, Adventus, um, in their story in the waters of baptism. So it was this month to prepare themselves for the way that they expected Jesus to show up in their lives. So this preparation time um, became a way that new converts at first, but eventually the entire church would tap into this truly ancient 
process of waiting for the Messiah. Um, the, for centuries and centuries before, the Jewish people knew that their Savior was coming um, and that their job was to wait for him. Um, it's, a, it's a major part of what the Old Testament is about, what the prophets are about. Your, your Savior is coming. Um, and, and so you, you wait. And it's not a passive waiting, um, like you just sit around and throw your thumbs, he's coming someday. You know, it's, it's an active um, waiting, where you're doing everything you, in your power to prepare yourself for his arrival. Um, Thanksgiving's kind of a big deal um, at our house. Uh, we look forward to it and talk about it. It's full of traditions and those kind of deeply rooted feelings of home and stability. And it's something we, we know exactly what's going to happen, and we look forward to it every single year. And it's, it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of maybe our biggest holiday um, in our home. Um, but to say that we look forward to it and wait for Thanksgiving um, in any kind of passive way is laughable. It is a very active waiting. It's like Thanksgiving prep starts like two weeks early. And, uh, and Esther's like making things and putting them in the freezer. She's pre-making whatever she can make. And it's, you know, we rearranged the entire house. We had over 40 people this year. So we're sticking tables and chairs anywhere you can think to put a table and chair, you know, to get everybody in. And, and, uh, and uh, the preparation is intense. And so as we wait for Thanksgiving, it's not just a watching the clock and waiting. It's, it's a very active waiting. And that's what Advent waiting looks like. It's this very active waiting for the Messiah that means preparing our hearts and, and meditating in a way that prepares us for Jesus to arrive into our story. Um, it's a waiting anxiously for something that you also have to work hard for. Um, so Advent became the season where we wait for Jesus, um, the church uh, in general, by preparing our hearts for his coming, both his second coming which we know is imminent, but also is coming into our lives um, to show up in our stories in, in real and powerful ways. So we do that by looking back at his first coming. Um, so it's this, he proved to us he's the God who shows up um, on Christmas morning, and we use that to inform uh, the way we expect him to show up both in our lives and in the future. And it's not just a look back at a day in history when something amazing happens. It's this really intense focus on today and tomorrow because of what happened in the past. Um, there are writings in history that indicate Advent was being celebrated as early as the mid-400s. Um, and so, likely one of the oldest church liturgies um, that we have is the Advent season, this, this month of preparing. Um, over time, the church has led new converts and seasoned followers alike into this process of waiting for the arrival of Jesus. Um, and, and in so doing, they've identified kind of four aspects of the life of faith that are so fundamentally um, foundational to, the, to the, the life of discipleship um, that uh, any, any of us who meditate on these virtues um, for any length of time um, should find that meditation building into us a deep and desperate desire for Jesus. Like as we meditate on these um, what we call the Advent virtues, it should build in us a hunger. Um, and we talk about these moments all the time. Have you ever been reading the news um, and like at some deep gut level, deep in your core of being, you think, surely Jesus is coming soon. Anybody else do that? Like, please, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Like, we do that. And, that, and that's, that's what's supposed to happen 
in Advent. The, the church identified four virtues, peace, hope, joy, and love, that are so deeply desired by the human soul and yet so hard to find in our broken world. Um, that as we focus on them, as we focus deep on these virtues of peace, we really want peace, and yet it can be so hard to find. We really want to hope in something, and hope can be so hard to find when we look at our world. We really want joy, true, deep joy, and it can be so hard to find. We really want love, true, soul-level love, and it can be so hard to find. And, and so as we focus on these virtues and we realize how hard they are to come by, it's supposed to build in us this deep and guttural longing for the presence of Jesus. Please come so we can have peace and love and joy and hope. So each week of Advent comes with a virtue um, for us to meditate on as we wait for Jesus. Um, and it's supposed to be like kind of hanging out in the kitchen right before dinner time. When it's, it's like dinner time, you haven't eaten since lunch, you're already hungry, now you're in the kitchen, it smells so good. Like that's, that's what Advent is supposed to be like. If I don't eat soon, I'm going to die. Um, Maybe I'll be the only one that dramatic. But, um, but each week introduces us to a virtue, and it's supposed to build our hunger for Jesus um, as, we, as we meditate on them. And so the way we do it around here is I'll send out, we, we introduce the virtue on Sunday. We light the peace candle today. We talk about peace, and then I send out a, kind of some meditation prompts on Monday for us to uh, spend the week all the way till next Sunday meditating on peace um, and, and doing it in such a way that you even recognize where you lack it. Like, I have no peace. Man, I need Jesus. Like, and that's what it's supposed to do. It's not supposed to just be, be peaceful all week. Nope, I'm not going to get mad and be peaceful. No, no, no. It's that as you get mad, you're like, whew, I have a hard time accessing peace. I cannot wait until Jesus comes and fixes that. That's what the Advent meditations are supposed to do. So this week's uh, Advent virtue is peace, like I said, which um, for me has been a tough one this week. Um, between the chaos of Thanksgiving, which is good chaos, but chaos nonetheless, um, you know, and, and the necessary um, relational bumps that come with any good chaos, uh, and, uh, and then some very challenging uh, rough news um, we got this week, which we'll talk about later. It's been a hard week to study and, uh, and write about peace, but I also think that's the very reason peace is one of the Advent Virtues, because sometimes peace and all the other virtues, uh, for that matter, are often way um, easier to define by what they aren't than by what they are. Um, if you were, if I were to ask you to define peace, um, it's kind of tough. It's kind of tough to wrap a definition around such a big concept. Um, if you, I looked it up. It said a freedom from disturbance, tranquility. Um, which sounds pretty good, um, but it's still incredibly subjective because sometimes when Esther is her most quiet and outwardly tranquil is when she's the least at peace. And I know it. I know silence and tranquility means I did something really wrong. Like, and, what, and I'm like, what did I, what, am I in trouble? What did I do? You know, um, uh, the internal tor- turmoil is so great that... Um, She's a million miles from peace. But also, we had a friend um, who, uh, he was quite a bit older than us. He's actually passed on now. Um, and he had raised uh, his four daughters, who were all very energetic and noisy um, girls. And they had the house where everybody came and congregated. And, and, 
you know, and they were all grown and moved out. He used to come to our house, and we had nine kids, and our house was a cacophony of sound and chaos and just noise that would make me want to pull my hair out at times. And he used to come sit in my lazy boy and fall asleep with a smile on his face. You know, because he, because in that noise, in that lack of peace, he was innerly tranquil. And like, this is what it's supposed to be like. And, and so he found peace. So you got one person who, if, if, they're, if they're quiet and tranquil, they're in no peace. And another person who finds that in chaos. And so, um, so it can be hard to define what exactly is peace. So words just seem inadequate to truly communicate what peace is. We say the word all the time. Um, I just feel at peace. Let me say that. Um, can I please have one minute of peace? Hear that a lot. Um, uh, can we just all live in peace and say that? Peace, brother. Some of us say that. We use the word, but do we really know how to talk about it? How to talk about peace? How to have a conversation about it? This is where the Bible, I think, is a truly brilliant book. And what the topic of this year's Advent series is about. What we're going to dig into together. See, the Bible um, seems to know that this collection of writings is attempting to do the impossible. The, the Bible is an, an impossible endeavor. Uh, and it seems to know that. Um, because the Bible's job is to explain the unexplainable. That's, that's its purpose. Um, there's actually a, a field of theology called the apophatic theology or negative theology is the easier way to think about it um, that seeks to define God by what he's not rather than by what he is. Um, and the theory is that all the categories present within language are by definition too small to explain God. And so it's actually easier um, to define and describe God uh, by what he's not because if you if you find words to describe God, you clearly have it wrong because he's too big to be captured in words. And so, um, and so negative theologians seek um, to get as close as they can by trying to identify the things that we know are too small to be God. And so they kind of define God in the negative. Um, we know he's not this, we know he's not that, we know he's not this, and hope to create a picture of God by what he's not. Um, incidentally, um, there, uh, this is this is one of the problems with idol worship. Um, in the Old Testament, God said, do, do not ever attempt to make an image of me. Um, and, and the problem is, any image you make is too small. You've tried to capture something undefinable in an image. And God's like, no, no, no. Then you're going to think that's what I am, and I'm so much more than that. You can't capture me in an image. Um, and so negative theologians actually feel the same way about language. They're like, the second we use theology to to find God, we've made an idol. We've said, this is what he is. He's like, no, 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 so much more than that. You can't capture me um, in that. Uh, and yet we do this all the time. Um, but the Bible um, handles the incomprehensibility, that's a fun word, um, of God differently than the negative theologian. The Bible uses art, um, which is uh, on a whole different level. Of the entirety of Scripture, um, which we sometimes use such inviting and comforting metaphors as the playbook, um, the book of life, or the instruction manual for life. I mean, that's gross. Who other than my wife 
reads the instruction manual when you get a new thing from cover to cover. Anybody? Oh, stop it. Yeah, it's like, who's this like of an evening? Like, I'm just going to sit down and relax and read this. No, you only go to the instruction manual when something's broken. Like, and that's a terrible way to think about the scripture. Like, my life's a mess. How in the world do I fix it? Like, that's not what the Bible's supposed to be. Um, but sometimes that's how we tend to think about it. We, we tend to think of it uh, in this. But out of the scriptures, only 25% um, of the scriptures is written in what we call prose discourse. Um, which is one writer trying to communicate a truth directly to a reader. Um, that's prose discourse. If I were to tell you, you know, two and two is four, that's prose discourse. I'm trying to communicate to you a reality using language directly. Um, uh, the, the other 75% of the scripture is either a story being told um, or it's poetry both of which speak the truth indirectly. Um, so there's really only a quarter of the Bible is trying to directly communicate truth to your brain. The other 75% is doing it indirectly. You pick it up as you read the story. You pick it up as you read the poetry. So what does it mean? How do we teach peace indirectly um, without trying to define it directly? How do we talk about this concept that is so important to us and yet it's so hard to to accurately define with our words. Um, we use images. We use pictures um, that speak to our heart differently. Um, I, I don't have to explain to most of us um, that this waving of a white flag speaks of peace. Like we, we capture it without even having to talk about it. Um, and we might even get a little bit convicted as to, to what our... Um, lack of peace does to our kids. As I kind of meditated on this picture, I, I imagined what all of our silly Facebook wars and political wranglings do to our kids, and I picture them running through a field waving a white flag, like, can we just have peace? Our next one. Uh, something about this painting just exudes peace. Even though any mother could testify that if you're out in the yard trying to do gardening with a toddler, that is not a peaceful moment. <laughs> and yet, there's something uh, that this artist captured that speaks of peace and tranquility. Those, those golden moments, you know, that in the middle of the chaos where you get to be quiet for a minute. And I don't care who you are, if in the middle of a crazy, chaotic week, this, let's go to the next one, this picture doesn't make you um, long for peace, then you might be hopeless. Because <laughs> everything in me, when I look at that, it's just like, oh, God, I want that. I want that moment. Right? And of course, this is the classic. The dove. The symbol of peace. Harmless. Fluttering. Fragile. Whether you use the word or not, we all think and feel peace when we see this. And finally, yeah, Mona Lisa shooting the peace symbol. How could you get more peaceful than that, right? <laughs> so when we can't define peace, when we don't have the words, we capture it in art that makes our soul feel and maybe even long for something that the mind can't quite define. This deep inner 
desire for something that we don't even know how to talk about. Unfortunately, the Bible is not a God just shows up in a way that rocks you to your core. But God's glory is just on display for you, and your soul responds to it, and and that um, and tears just run down your face, and, and you would swear the world just wasn't the same afterwards. How on earth do you communicate that moment to somebody? You know, when you walk up and, and, and you're like, God just touched my soul and it was incredibly moving and I wept. And they're like, cool story, bro. And, and you're like, you don't understand the depth of what happened to me. You know, what I experienced. And so if you were to say the mountains shook and the heavens thundered and there was a sound of a mighty trumpet that blew and light shone from heaven. And people were like, are you serious? Like, and you're like, that's what it felt like. Like, what you're doing right now, that's exactly how I felt. And so poetic language creates this picture that, that gets gross the second you're going, now hold on a second, did the mountains really shake? Like, no, you're missing it. It's poetry, because poetry moves our souls in a way that our brains don't always get. The picture painted, the art communicates what definitions fail to say. And one-third of our Bible works this way, uh, including today's lectionary reading from the Psalms. Psalm 25 is a really fun poem um, for this week's lesson because it's not only kind of a neat piece of Jewish poetry, um, but it's also sort of a study in negative theology, which is kind of cool. Um, so we're going to read it from the beginning, and then we'll discuss... Um, I'm going to be reading from the message translation this week, which I don't normally do, but I personally, whenever I, I listen to the Psalms um, uh, every day, and I listen to the message, and so that's kind of what I've grown used to. Um, so if you're following along on an app, you can click over to the message if you want to. This is Psalm 25, a, a David psalm. Uh, my head is high, God, held high. I'm looking to you, God. No hangdog skulking for me. I've thrown in my lot with you. You won't embarrass me, will you? Or let my enemies get the best of me? Don't embarrass, any, don't embarrass any of us who went out on a limb for you. It's the traitors who should be humiliated. Show me how you work, God. School me in your ways. Take me by the hand and lead me down the path of truth. You are my Savior, aren't you? Mark the milestones of your mercy and love, God. Rebuild the ancient landmarks. Forget that I sowed wild oats. Mark me with your sign of love. Plan only the best for me, God. God is fair and just. He corrects the misdirected, sends them in the right direction. He gives the rejects his hand and leads them step by step. From now on, every road you travel will take you to God. Follow the covenant signs. Read the charted directions. Keep up your reputation. God, forgive my bad life. It's been a very bad life. This is the word of the Lord. Tiny bit of nerd work. I'm not going to spend much time here. Um, this is a, a Hebrew acrostic poem. So if those of you who um, read Hebrews, which I'm sure most of you, um, this is an acrostic, which means every verse starts with um, the letter of the, the successive Hebrew uh, alphabet. So this is like, it'd be, they're kind of cheesy when we write them, like, like apples or the bananas are, you know, cantaloupes. I don't know. Um, but, you know, where you, you uh, follow an acrostic, um, so uh, it was obviously a very intentionally written piece of art. This wasn't just somebody pouring out their heart. They spent time on this um, to write it in a particular um, form, which is always interesting when we try to uh, 
I'm standing too far. I just look down and realize my head is like right here on the live here. Sorry, my old fam. Um, got a little close. Uh, sometimes we, we sit there and we labor over specific words in some of this poetry. And I wonder what the poet, who is just trying to find a word that worked for the letter F, you know, um, what he would make of us, you know, the, the detail we put into translation sometimes when he was like, do not, that word didn't really work for me, but it was the only thing I could come up with. You know, if you've ever written any poetry, you know what that's like. Um, but the second thing, um, and this is more, maybe more important to our purpose, um, scholars don't believe that this particular psalm was written in response to any single moment in David's life. There are particular psalms that were written for a moment. Sometimes the psalm will tell us. Um, sometimes you can pick it up from the context. Uh, but this one they don't believe was written for any uh, single uh, outward incident. Um, so let me see if I can break that down, the reason, um, just a little bit. Look at the breadth of topics that David covers um, in these verses. Um, you wouldn't embarrass me, will you? Anyone ever struggle with that fear of saying something stupid or making a fool of yourself? Anybody? Anybody, like, just walk around with that anxiety? Like, that's something I want to say, but I don't want to sound stupid. You know, yeah, we all kind of have that. Um, or let my enemies get the best of me. There's a pretty dramatic turn in the psalm um, from embarrassment to, to fear of being taken advantage of or, or conquered by an enemy. A lot of us carry that. We have that deep suspicion that everybody's, you know, out for something and, and God, please don't let me get taken advantage of. Don't embarrass, embarrass any of us who went out on a limb for you. It's the traitors who should be humiliated. Um, and now we've gone from kind of personal embarrass, embarrassment to a little more corporate embarrassment. Does anybody hear a little bit of American politics in that line? Anybody feel that? Anybody feel that kind of political struggle? God, we're trying to stand up for you. Anybody feel that? Show me how you work, God. School me in your ways. Take me by the hand and lead me down the path of truth. This one's a little emotional. Um, to be, be honest now, serious show of hands, how many of you have ever heard somebody talk about the Bible like it's this simple rule book for life? And if you would just read it, your life would be so much better. And you're like, I tried, and that's a hard book. Like, anybody ever do that? Like, it's, it's not that easy. Like, and you're like, God, just, why can't you just tell me what to do? Why do I got to read this giant book and figure it out from the context? Just lead me, please. I don't want to mess up. I really do want to serve you, but man, it's hard. You see it right there. Show me your ways, God, please. I really do want to follow you. I just don't know what to do. You are my Savior, aren't you? Another emotional one. Anybody else ever have that sneaky voice of doubt in the back of your head? creeps in when you don't want it there. And you really believe in Jesus. You know you do. And the whole faith thing is, 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 is there. And yet, you have those questions that won't shut up. And every now and then you want to say, I do have this right, right? God, you are my Savior, right? You feel the anxiety. Mark the milestones of your mercy and love, God. Rebuild the ancient landmarks. We have another social lament. Anyone else ever gets shocked and stressed about how far our country has gone from its roots? And you see David going, put back the ancient landmarks. God, 
Like the founding fathers would roll over in their graves if they saw this. Heck, Trump based his entire campaign on that concept. It's like David is saying, make Israel great again. Bigger. Forget that I sowed wild oats. Mark me with the sign of your love. Another painful one. Anyone have stuff in your past that is affecting your peace in the present? God, please forgive the big stupid thing that did back then. So scholars look at this crazy list of stresses and basically conclude that there is no way David experienced all of this in a single event that motivated him to write this psalm. Which begs the question, why did David write Psalm 25? And I have to disagree with the scholars on this one. I think there is a single event that motivated the writing of Psalm 25, and it's called Tuesday. And here's what I mean by that. Let's do a quick and maybe somewhat playful translation of Psalm 25 in today's circumstances. God, help me not say anything stupid or make a fool of myself. Help me to project way more confidence than I actually feel so no one knows how insecure I am. And God, please do something about those idiots who are taking away my rights. Don't let them prevail. And of course, please help us in the midterms. Our team desperately needs to win. The soul of our nation is at stake. And God, I really feel like this path in front of me is from you, except it might be the enemy trying to lure me away from the path that's actually from you, from the blessing that you have for me, which just hasn't presented itself quite yet. So I guess I'll pass from this and wait for something better, unless that's actually what the enemy wants me to do. Anyone? Anyone else? And keep me teachable. And help me to know if I have something wrong in my belief system, but I'm also nervous about stuff that sounds smart, but is different from anything I've ever heard before. I certainly don't want to be lured away. I don't want to put on blinders and ignore sound reason. And I also want to have simple faith in the gospel. And God, what is wrong with millennials and Gen Z? We need good old-fashioned American values again. Of course, now that I've criticized the younger generations, my conscience is pricking me on my past screw-ups. I definitely contributed to the problem. You would feel like this prayer could basically be any given Tuesday. I think David did write this, motivated by a single event. What David does in this beautiful piece of artwork is to paint a picture of stress. The average, everyday, universal stress of the human mind. See, we could break each of these verses down into individual words and build little theological statements off of each verse and quote them out of context whenever we need them to prove a point in some prose discourse type debate. I don't think that's what David had in mind. What David does is he paints a picture with words of just how desperately he lacks and needs peace. 
there's a list a mile wide of things tugging at David's mind. Can anyone relate to that? Anybody else feel that pull of a thousand different stresses and a thousand different things that rob your peace? If David had been a painter, he might have done this. That's my mind. It's a storm. Always, where everything always feels on the edge of capsizing. I'm hanging on for dear life. But instead of painting, David's a wordsmith. So he painted a picture with his specific medium, that being poetry, of a storm that was his mind. And so how does David conclude? Plan only the best for me, God. God is fair and just. He corrects the misdirected, sends them in the right direction. He gives the rejects his hand and leads them step by step. From now on, every road you travel takes you to God. Follow the covenant signs. Read the charted directions. Keep up your reputation, God. Forgive my bad life. One word David paints with this scenario, and that's sovereignty. In other words, God is in control. He's very big. And, and simply put, not nearly as much of this is on my shoulders as it feels like it is. Ultimately, God takes care of things. And I promise you, when you are in a stress storm, that is the only place where peace is at. Is an understanding you are not steering the ship. If you don't have this kind of deep, abiding faith in God's sovereignty, and you feel like everything depends on you working really hard and doing it just right and not screwing up, you will pray the first half of Psalms 25 all the time. God, what about this? What about that? God, please don't let me screw up. Please don't let my enemies get me. Oh, God, what's going to happen if we lose this election? And please speak clearly whether I'm fighting his head. Anybody else ever do that? Anybody else ever ramble and while talking you realize, okay, maybe I said too much. Yeah, I do that every once in a while. Where I'm like, uh, I'll be talking with someone else and then I'll start into this internal debate, you know, which always makes me worry about this. And then, and then I, yeah, but the other side is, and I look up and everybody's like, I'm like, oh, God, did you see the crazy? Like, did I, did I open the door a little too far? Yeah. People are like, okay, cuckoo. But David, David opens it up and paints a picture of the storm that can roil around inside of our heads and, and how he finds peace in that storm. And I know it sounds cheap and too good to be true, David says the only way out of that storm is this. God is fair and just and corrects the misdirect. He sends them on the right path, the right direction. He gives the rejects his hand and leads them step by step. From now on, every road you travel will take you to God. Interpretation, God's got this. Grasping that the only way out of this internal storm is that God is big. We serve a big God and He is in control. David's art 
does what definitions can't do. His art helps us to feel the stress of living in a broken, fallen world. And also the miracle deliverance from that stress that comes from learning to rest in a sovereign God. Art is able to speak to the part of our brains where emotions are housed. We'll be talking about this a little bit more in this series. But the limbic cortex in the brain is where we feel emotions. It's the part that lights up when you're angry or lights up when you're sad. It's this kind of root central part of our brain where all emotions come from. And it functions completely differently from the cerebral cortex. We have a tendency to feel like we only have one brain. We actually have two brains. Uh, And these two parts do not always um, get along. This is why you can totally want a cheeseburger and totally want to lose weight. And some people are like, if you really want to lose weight, you wouldn't eat the cheeseburger. I was like, no, I can really, really, really want both. Like with 100% of what feels like 100% of my brain. I am desperate to be more healthy and lose weight. And man, I am desperate for that cheeseburger too. That's because we have two brains. The limbic cortex and the cerebral cortex. And those two don't talk to each other well. But the most frustrating part of the limbic cortex is the fact that it has no language center. The limbic cortex doesn't have words in it. We, we don't interpretate any language or decoding in the limbic cortex. All that happens in the cerebral cortex. In other words, you cannot tell yourself what to feel with words and do it. Anybody ever been in a panic moment and was like, just calm down? Has that ever worked for anybody? Oh, thank you. I hadn't thought of that. I think I will. <laughs> no. Even when you rationally on the front of your brain know that there's no reason to be panicking right now, sometimes you can still be panicking. Because the limbic cortex is lit up like a, like a light bulb, and the cerebral cortex is trying to go, this is not a rational response right now, and the limbic cortex is not listening. You don't tell yourself what to feel and use logical arguments. You can't reason with the limbic brain. It doesn't work that way. But you can access it art and things like that. With, with, uh, and this is why music is so important to what we do. I can say with words, this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. I can say that just fine. And for some reason, you set up the music and I start crying. Every time. I don't understand why. Except I do. It's because music is speaking to that part of my brain that feels like this is my story and feels like this is my song. We believe that we were created by God with both brains. He made us rational beings who can think about time and the future and do math. And He also made us emotional beings who feel things deeply like God feels things deeply. And so the church, years and years and years ago, tapped into art and music because it's like we need to speak to that other part of our brain, too. Yes, we need to rationalize. We need to do theology. We need to look at the the sound arguments for why God is. But we also need to tap into that part of our brain that feels connected. Art speaks to a totally different part of our brains. And it's an important part that God made. And that's why we need to be careful not to treat it like a lesser 
fates are a part of us. Like, like reason is good, emotion bad. No, no, no. God made us emotional creatures. And it's important to tap into that. This wife, 33% of the Bible, a full third of the Bible, is in poetic form. The kind of writing that taps into that part of our brain. And 25% is rational form. Prose discourse that ties the talks to the other part of our brain. God knew what he was doing when he wrote the scripture. So how do we respond to this? There's this uh, famous story from the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in Nazi Germany. It was a female camp, um, and it housed many of the greatest atrocities of the war. Um, The Allies liberated the camp in 1945, and they found out the incinerators had broken, and so there were just mountains of dead bodies laying around everywhere. Um, The worst part was that the remaining prisoners uh, had lost the will to live, had given up on life. So even after being liberated and receiving food and water and safety, the prisoners were still dying at a rate of 500 a day. Until someone sent the camp Someone sent the camp a huge crate of lipstick. And the soldiers were furious. To this day, when you read the writings, um, they had no idea who sent it or why. And they were like, of all the things we need, uh, medicine and food and clothing and a million other things, who is the idiot that sent lipstick? But something miraculous happened when the women found the lipstick. They all lined up to get some. They came out of their bunks where they had been for a couple weeks and they lined up to get lipstick. They weren't even showing up for meals. But they showed up for lipstick. And apparently from that moment on, Every single 75-pound emaciated woman who had survived hell could now be seen walking around the camp with bright red lips. And the bigger miracle was that they started living. They started getting better. They stopped dying. They started eating and putting on weight and growing stronger. Something as simple as lipstick changed everything because it spoke something to the women that the soldiers, with all their kindness and and words, and no matter how gently they said to them, the lipstick spoke something to them that the soldiers couldn't. It sent a message that the war was over. You don't put on lipstick in the middle of war. The lipstick spoke of peace in a way that soldiers serving food in a cafeteria line couldn't speak. 
the women somehow knew if we're being given makeup, the war is actually over. You don't give a concentration camp prisoner lipstick. And you don't take the time to put it on if you could die tomorrow. So this demonstration, this image, this funny little decoration that had to look terribly out of place saved as many lives as the liberating soldiers because it communicated peace in a way that words were failing to do. Some people shy away from the poetry in the Bible because they don't know what to do with it. And they're scared of discussions about whether something literally happened there, whether the Bible author was using poetic language. And and people are afraid of that discussion, so they just try not to talk about the art of the Bible much. But I think the Bible is brilliant. I absolutely love that the Bible has been talking to both the rational brain and the emotional brain long before humans even knew those two things existed. I don't think the Bible is outdated or regressive at all. I think it's actually way ahead of us and we're always just trying to catch up. And I think passages like Psalms 25, even though they might seem a little academic when we break them down on a Sunday morning like this, I think they hit different when you're having one of those Tuesdays that David was no doubt having when he wrote it. When your entire world has fallen apart, or when the voices of all the different stresses that bounce around our brains endlessly get so loud that you think peace is just a cruel joke. David's soothing voice says, Hey, God has got this. You can relax because God is in control. We serve a really big God. He's good. I got to see this firsthand this week. I alluded to getting some tough news this week. Roger Kelly, um, who a lot of you know, has been suffering from back pain for the past several weeks now. And uh, he had a scan this week and it revealed that his cancer is back and very aggressive. Um, They don't have all the details yet. They have more tests to do. But Roger and Sheila's lives fell apart this week. And it's very possible... Roger's life could now be measured in weeks. He may get more time, but the worst case scenario, which Roger's having to honestly consider, is now in the range of weeks. I went to the hospital to spend some time with Roger, and he's at peace. He's worried about Sheila, and he's worried about his kids a little bit, but for himself, He's at peace. He knows he hasn't lived a perfect life, and 
He knows that he has, but he knows he has faith in Jesus and that God's grace covers him. And whether this week's news is a comma or a period, Roger trusts the one who's writing the story. It was humbling for me because I had a chaotic week. I felt like I was in that storm. And I went to talk to a guy whose life is upside down. I felt like he was calming me. Like he was soothing me. The hardest thing about writing a sermon about peace is I don't have access to the right words. I don't even know how to talk about it. What I saw in that hospital room. When I think of peace, when I feel peace, it's in images, not words. It's standing at a quick trip and realizing I have no reason to fear police officers. It's in sitting in a hospital room with one of the most faithful people I know telling me that they have no fear as they walk right up to the exit door of life. And it's in, it's always in the idea of lipstick on a concentration camp survivor. Peace is felt more than it's explained. And this is why Jesus came. This is the reason he came. Why didn't God just redeem us in his mind, just decide to do it, and then send us a message? Why all the drama? I think it's because of this verse. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were sinners. God could have told us. But if his words, he did tell us, but his words would have only spoken to part of our brain. God knew words weren't enough, so he showed us. He gave us a picture of his love for us. He demonstrated it. So we could see it with the language of our souls that he loved us. That picture is worth a thousand words. And the cross is the most beautiful picture ever. And this passage in Romans 5, Romans 5 begins with these words. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. God showed us his love. He demonstrated it. He didn't just tell us. He showed us so we can realize that because of the work of Jesus on our behalf, we have peace with the sovereign, good God of the universe. Real peace. So here's how I would love to respond to this message. This week, from now till next Sunday, turn up the volume on your internal life. If you were writing Psalms 25, what, what, would, what would the list of stresses be? What bounces around inside your crazy? 
What would your storm look like? Don't run from that this week. Own that. Own the storm like David did. And then, remind yourself of the all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe who sent His Son to demonstrate for you His love. He sent His Son to advent us, to advent, to arrive in your story so that you could trust Him and have peace.